Lynn Vavrick is the Marvin Hoffenberg Professor of American Political Science at UCLA. In 2019 and 2020, she was the leader of a massive survey project called Nationscape. Over the course of a year and a half, they interviewed half a million of us, probing our political convictions and how we were deciding to vote. That report formed the basis of her book, The Bitter End, in which she and her co-authors, John Sides and Christo Sanovich, laid out a chronicle of the 2020 presidential election. Her book reads like a novel chronicling the events, the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, the defeat of Donald Trump, the triumph of Joe Biden, and in the course of that finds detailed statistical ways to test a host of questions that the election spawned. And also in the course of presenting that history, she lays out a new theory about the structure of our political lives. She calls her view calcification, and she has written a truly remarkable book. This is the first part of a two-part series of my interview with her. Will her conclusion that American politics has calcified hold true in the 2024 election? The first step, of course, is to understand just what calcification means. So, Professor Vavrick, welcome to the political conversation. Thank you, Wally. It's great to be here. So let me just open the gate wide. Uh, we need to hear from you just what the new theory is about. I, I'm not sure I would call it a, a theory, um, but it is sort of a description of our current moment um, political moment, and um, we call it calcification, um, and it's it's born of basically four things, and the first is that there is an increasing homogeneity within the parties, and that's Democrats and Republicans within the Democratic Party. People who call themselves Democrats are more like one another politically, possibly even descriptively, than they have been in the last several decades. So increasing sameness within parties, but also an increasing distance between the parties. So the two parties on average are separating. And we've seen that in Congress for a long time, but we're starting to see it now in the mass electorate as well. So that there's less commonality on average between the two parties. So those are the first two things, sameness within, distance between, and then the third component of calcification is this rise of identity-inflected issues to the top of the list of things that we're fighting over. So we're fighting politically now over things like immigration, separating children at the border, abortion, person-based issues, as opposed to maybe if you think of the 1980s or 90s, when we were fighting more over New Deal type of issues, the role and size of government, whether the government should provide health care. So those issues have fallen to be less important. And these identity inflected issues are now more important to people. And then the last component that delivers us to calcification is a rough balance in the electorate between people who call themselves Democrats and people who call themselves Republicans. So a partisan parity in the electorate. 
And that's going to make the stakes of every election feel very high because we're fighting over these person-based issues and elections are turning on a knife's edge. And I should just say one last thing, that calcification like it does in the human body, it makes things rigid and stiff like it does with bones. So our politics has become inflexible um, and there's just a rigidity to it that is derived from these four things that just happen to coincide at this moment in time. So is, uh, is, is it fair to say that the, uh, what calcification means in practice is that individual voters tend to vote much the same all the time and blocks of voters also tend uh, to vote the same over and over again? Yeah, and the easiest way to think about that is just think about party. Um, people who call themselves Democrats, they're tending now to vote for Democratic candidates at every level of election, uh, less ticket splitting. They're voting the same way it, over time as well, election after election, always for Democrats, more than we have seen in the recent past. And the same is true for Republicans. I, I think back to uh, prior to the 1960s, which I actually can think back to, uh, and there used to be a lever in the voting machine that you could pull. And you didn't have to go, you didn't have to make up your mind about anybody. <laughs> you exactly. pulled a lever and you either pulled the Republican lever and you voted for 22 Republicans or you pulled the Democratic lever and you voted for 22 Democrats. We're kind of sort of returning to that. We just got rid of the lever. Yes. And there's a sense in which, you know, people would talk about that straight ticket voting as if it were a bad thing that it was a non-thinking way of voting. And that led us into a period of time where people really focused a lot on the candidates as individuals and that they were different and they maybe had different ideas from one another and different characteristics and experience and maybe levels of scandal or whatever. And that people should be voting for different parties at different levels of office, perhaps because the issues that the... Um, that elected official, you know, was dealing with would be very different, whether governor or city council, for example, president or city council. But straight ticket voting, as you've described it, it doesn't have to be a non-thinking way of voting. And for example, in the current moment of time, where, as I said, there's a lot of separation between the parties in terms of um, positions on issues or ideological orientation, then if you are a voter who knows the kind of world you want to live in, it's very easy for you to see, oh, that aligns with this party or that party. And it, and it may not be non-thinking to vote a straight ticket. It's just that Democrats across all level of office now, president, governors, they tend to all have the same orientation toward the world and the same positions on issues. And so in some ways, you can be a thinking voter and still be doing this straight ticket voting. Sure. If someone tells me where they, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, and they've told me a whole heck of a lot about themselves. Yeah. Um, I, I may be wrong on some of the stuff, but I kind of sort of think I'm right on a bunch of the stuff. You have a really good chance of, of knowing a pretty decent amount about their political orientation. So there is one other aspect that you've discussed 
uh, in the course of calcification that that isn't just about voters and, and how they vote. Um, it's a it's a rigidity in the results of the elections. I think there was uh, mm-hmm. uh, there was a comment you made that really struck me. Um, and this was, I believe, not uh, not in the 2020 book, but it was afterwards with with Warnock's victory in Georgia. This was the first time in history that every incumbent senator won re-election. Hadn't happened ever until 2022. It's a kind of rigidity that occurred. I don't remember saying that, but... (laughs) But that, what you're talking about, the rigidity in outcomes, um, is, it's a very interesting... Um, part of this story that as we've entered into this calcified political moment, we're seeing less volatility around outcomes. And that happens at the state level, for example. So um, there was a lot of reshuffling of states in 2016. One of the things that this calcified political moment delivers is a reduction in the volatility surrounding election outcomes. And so you can think about that happening at a lot of different levels. We could think about states. We could think about counties. They look more, their outcomes look more like they did the last time. And we can think about people, Um, people tending to stick with the candidate they voted for the last time. Um, And so that's all a product of this calcification. But it's also, remember I said about the partisan parity, the fact that the parties are in such balance in the electorate also means that outcomes are turning on almost anything, a very small number of voters. So this is a weirdness at the same time that we're getting this um, reduction in the volatility of outcomes. We're also seeing that these elections are getting closer and closer and closer so that really anything might flip an election from Democrat to Republican. And that whi- that whiplash is, I think, also very anxiety provoking for people, not knowing, not having a good sense of what's going to happen on election night. So Donald Trump was elected president in 2016 uh, because of the Electoral College structure. He won that election by 70,000 votes. And I'm doing this from memory. Joe Biden comes along in 2020. He wins the presidency once again because of electoral college structure by 40,000 votes. Where could it be in 2024? Well, you know, if you had to bet, why not bet in the 20s? You know, because that's sort of the pattern. Um, And, you know, people like to push back whenever I, I cite these numbers. That's not the number of votes you know, Biden won by hundreds of thousands, you know. Um, But it's really important, the point that you made, the rules of the game are the rules of the game. And everybody knows the rules when they start. And the rules say that we're deciding these outcomes with the Electoral College, so state by state. And the numbers that you're citing are the number of voters within the states that it would have taken to flip the outcome to the other person. And yes, that number was like 44,000 votes in 2020. Um, That is a really small number of voters. When you break that down into 
you know, the three states that it would have taken to change the outcome, you're getting down into, you know, to 12,000 votes. Um, so yes, these elections are turning on the knife's edge and it makes it, you know, when people, whoa, well, how, what determined the outcome? Well, when we're talking about 10,000 votes, like that literally could be anything. Yeah. My uncle sneezed. <laughs> Hopefully not that. <laughs> so let me, let me push back a bit on one aspect of this. Uh, you've described what Kelsey, what the what the view is. What the, and thank you for correcting me on the use of the term theory. I think you're no, you're, no. I you're well. I think your description of it as a description is powerful. It it, it really it really has resonance. Um, but here's something that I think people hear you say that I'm not sure you say. Okay. And that, okay. And that is that the 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 role of the center. We've already started talking about the center. The role of the center seems missing in the four factors. It seems missing in the way a lot of the explanation um, pans out. Um, and uh, it seems like our our politics is in a kind of paralysis in which voters do not consider the merits of individual candidates. And that is because the center is gone. There are no moderates, no independents. <laughs> If people hear those words coming from you, even though I don't think you have been saying those words. That's right. Yes, we, we have not been saying those words. Um, the Certainly the role of candidates is important. You saw that in the midterm elections. People do pay attention to qualifications, to experience. And when we're talking about elections that are turning on so few votes, the quality of that candidate, that could be pivotal. So candidates, messaging, campaigning, advertising, getting out the vote, all of that stuff, it's not becoming less important. Um, in, in many ways, it's as important as ever, if not more important, because we're really trying to, um, to get the last 1,000, 10,000 voters. As for the conversation about, you know, is the middle missing and where's the middle, um, you know, this is endlessly fascinating. And most people have a mix of liberal and conservative positions on issues. Um, very few people are all conservative or all liberal. But we can't fight politically about all issues. Moments in time provide us with things that we have to be talking about. COVID, for example, or conflict, or immigration, or abortion. So there, you can only fight about a set of things. You can't fight about everything. After the New Deal, there was a long period of time where we were fighting about those New Deal-type issues. And on the things that rise to the top of the salience list, the impact, the high-impact issues at any moment in time, most people will have liberal or conservative positions on those, even if they have cross positions on other things that are less important. So that doesn't mean that there are no moderates. In fact, most people are moderates. Most Democrats are moderates. Most Republicans will say they're moderates. Um, that, you know, it's, it's sort of very useful to think about the six or seven things that each of these elections is turning on. And in that case, 
most voters are have a clear alignment with one or the other party, even if ideologically they are not a super conservative or a super liberal. And on top of that, uh, the the independents in our politics seem to be playing a very strong role. Um, when they break uh, toward Donald Trump, they he becomes president. When independents broke for uh, Joe Biden, he became president. And we've seen that play out over and over. And independents have grown in our society from a minuscule 20% when I was a kid growing up to it's pushing past 40% these days, 41, 42% of the electorate. The largest single group uh, of voters in the country are folks who say, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an independent. What are your thoughts on their role? So I think it's helpful to think about the 40% of people saying that they are independents by keeping in mind that when we push those people do you lean toward one party or the other? Almost all of them will say they lean one way or the other. Very, very few people, when pushed, stick with the idea that they are an independent, um, single digits of people. The second thing I think is that it's really important not to conflate independence with moderates. So people who are ideologically in the middle of the road. People, the, the, the single digit, the five, six, eight, nine, whatever it is, percent of people who stick with that independent label after being given the chance to lean toward one party or the other, those people are less interested in politics. They vote less often. They're just not really politically involved relative to even the people who lean and are partisans. Moderates... Are not that's not the case. Um, as I said, most Democrats call themselves moderates. Repu- most Republicans, moderates is a category of people that describes people with a mix of issue positions. But independent, that pure independent category, is really someone who is not as highly invested as politics as partisans. So this is an issue that I've been discussing with uh, Mo Fiorina of Stanford, who you know well. Yes. And um, and Mo has a distinctive take on it. Do, do you want to play the lead on, on uh, laying out how Mo sees that or should <laughs> I should I take a swat at it? No, you should you should present Mo's argument. I'll, I'll present Mo's Mo's view. Mo's view is that the the leaders that you've discussed, uh, uh, I'm 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 Wally. I'm polled. Uh, I'm asked, are you a Republican or a Democrat or an independent? I say, I'm an independent. And the pollster doesn't say, cool, let's go on to this and that topic. No, the pollster stops and says, uh, you're an independent. Do you see yourself as closer to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? And I give an answer. And then I'm characterized as a Republican leader or a Democratic leaner. Um, and the theory develops that there really is uh, no essential difference between these folks and uh, straight line Republicans and Democrats because they typically end up voting the way they told the pollster. They leaned. Mm-hmm. And most observation is the poll is taken at a particular point in time. There's an election coming up. Why couldn't it be? And it may well be 
that the voter who is an independent has in mind that they're going to vote for Joe Biden, they're going to vote for Donald Trump in the coming election, I must be a Republican or I must be a Democrat. Makes sense for me to respond that way to the, to the pollster. So it's Mo's way of reconstructing the validity of the initial answer, that the person may indeed really be independent, um, and the fact that they end up voting Democratic is their own prediction of how they were going to vote. I, I seems completely possible to me. You know, survey research is a great tool, and um, I use it a lot, and it's always important to keep in mind that as carefully as we word these questions, we can only say on average, you know, this is how people are answering them. And it's very difficult to know why they're answering the way they're answering. And in this particular case, what um, what Professor Fiorina is laying out is, in fact, just um, it would be very hard to unpack this with a survey at the same moment, like you would have to say to these people, now, are you just telling me you lean toward the Democratic Party because you think you're going to vote for Hillary Clinton in this election? You know, and and then you're into this whole strange space where you're asking survey respondents to sort of self-analyze, which is never a great idea. Um, so, yes, all of this is a possible criticism. But, you know, let's just say that these 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 initial independents really are different. From well, they're certainly different from partisans in, in the in the just by observation, since they won't say they're a partisan. So in some way, they don't want to say I'm a Democrat or Republican. Um, and you know, we could have a long conversation about why that might be. Um, I think you know, Mo and I tend to be on the same side of this. It maybe it's identity, but maybe it's not. Um, but they're calling themselves independents. And these other people are willing to call themselves partisans. So they're different already. Um, what does that mean in terms of elections? Well, does it really mean that those 40% of people are up for grabs in every election? Here's where panel data can help us out a little bit. So interviewing the same people over multiple waves. Let's say we have one of these people who says, I'm an independent, when you first ask them. But... You also know that they've only ever voted for a Democrat or they've only ever voted for a Republican. Um, that That's what we want to know from a voting analysis. I don't really care what they call themselves. Like what I care about is, is this person someone who votes for Democrats or votes for Republicans or mixes their ballot or whatever? Um, so some, so, you know, not all those independents are flipping around Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. Um, some of them really are regular party voters. Um, but yes, it's possible that the answer they're giving in that moment is being driven by how they're seeing the upcoming election. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because, uh, bluntly because of the sheer size of the independent electorate. It just didn't exist when I became politically active uh, many, many years ago. And uh, it's interesting to me that we're, we're still struggling to figure out who these folks are. We recognize, and there's not much dispute about this, that how they end up voting 
um, is determining who's winning the election over and over and over again. Uh, I want to I want to kind of add a wrinkle to that, please. Um, with elections becoming closer and closer. It's also possible that turning out your base is what's pivotal in the outcome. Um, getting the early vote out, getting people to turn in their mail-in ballots. Like it's, it's a little bit like the student who comes into my class. I've given them a B and they come in and they say, Professor Vavrick, you are keeping me from going to law school because I got a B in your class. And well, no, what, what about all the other classes you got B's in when you were a freshman, right? Those certainly matter right now too, but you've forgotten about those. And so Taking the base for granted, I think, is also problematic as elections get closer and closer. Um, so yes, the independents are very important to the outcome, but, but literally so is everything else, every other form of electioneering. That ends part one of The Bitter End uh, with Lynn Vavrick, in which we discussed her theory called calcification. Uh, Part two will be posted soon, and in that, we delve into the 2022 election and find lessons that will be pertinent to 2024.